Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word, we acknowledge its authority over our lives. It is, as they say, our infallible rule of faith and practice. And so, God, we pray that we would submit to you now as we submit to Scripture. God, I pray that the message today would be clear and helpful and encouraging, and that it would put forth Christ in all his glory. And in doing so, I pray that your people would see the glory of your Son displayed in the ordinance of baptism. But we pray that this time would not just be theological reflection, but that your spirit would guide us into all truth, that our faith might be strengthened, and that we might be emboldened to proclaim your name in this fallen world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we'll have our annual baptism meeting at Long Beach, and Lord willing, we'll hear several people publicly profess their faith and be baptized in the cold, shark-infested waters of the Atlantic. (laughs) Those brave souls. And so I thought it'd be fitting this morning to revisit the topic of baptism by reviewing the theology of baptism. Now, usually on Sunday mornings, we preach expositionally through a book of the Bible. But every once in a while, we'll preach a sermon that is topical, which means the sermon is woven around one theme or one topic. And so today, the topic of this sermon will be the ordinance of baptism. Now, here I am at North Shore Baptist Church. So I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, you guys know that baptism is important. But for the most part, I think Christians consider baptism to be unimportant. These days, it's seen as something that's optional to the Christian life. Even among Baptists, I think that there's a failure to appreciate its significance. For example, when, whenever Baptist churches are talking about baptism, well, the emphasis is on baptismal statistics, emphasizing the number of people being baptized rather than its rich and profound meaning. Now, the fact that people consider baptism to be unimportant should not come as a surprise. John MacArthur once said that the reason it's hard to take baptism seriously is because the world is full of baptized non-Christians and unbaptized Christians. The world is full of baptized non-Christians and unbaptized Christians. I think he's right. For example, there are countless unbelievers who think that they've been baptized, right? Think about the millions of Roman Catholics who get sprinkled by their priests, and then think about what happens at these seeker-sensitive megachurches where many unbelievers can claim to have been baptized. Now, regarding unbaptized Christians, that is, believers who have never been baptized, well, this group has also grown in size, and it might include some of you. You see, what I've observed is that Christians have the tendency to consider things that are non-essential, non-essential, to be unimportant. Anything that's not essential to salvation is not important at all. And so as a result, you have many people who have no problem with opting out of baptism. They have no problem with opting out of making a public profession of faith, and they refuse to go on public record as embracing the lordship of Christ. So you see, this paradox of baptized non-Christians and unbaptized Christians is why it's hard 
to take baptism seriously. Well, today, I'd like to impress upon you the importance of baptism, despite all the baptismal malpractice we see around us. And I want to do that by breaking down the theology of baptism into seven different points. So point number one, baptism is an ordinance. Point number one is simply, baptism is an ordinance. And what I mean by that is that it is ordered by Jesus in such a way that it becomes an ongoing practice in the church. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, like the Lord's Supper, baptism is an ordinance. The church is given the command to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey Jesus. Now, Christians are also given the command to be baptized. Uh, So churches are to baptize, and Christians are to be baptized. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Moreover, throughout the New Testament, we see that baptism was expected of every single Christian. In fact, you will not find an unbaptized Christian in the Bible. So if you're a Christian, you must be baptized. Not being baptized means that you have not obeyed the first item on the list when Jesus says to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's important to understand, let's start off with the fact that baptism is not just human tradition, right? It's not something the church created, and it's also not something that's optional. It's not like having a birthday cake on your birthday, right? Because you can have a birthday without a birthday cake, but the difference is that Jesus did not command birthday cakes. He commanded baptism. It's a command from Christ that's binding on all Christians. Point number one, baptism is an ordinance. It is a command. Point number two, baptism is by immersion. It is by immersion and not by sprinkling or pouring. So how does one get baptized? Well, baptism is done by putting a person into water and then bringing them back up out of the water. Now, why do we do it like that? Well, the first reason comes from the meaning of the word baptizo. Uh, the word for baptize in the Greek is baptizo. And the word baptizo simply means to immerse. So in its original and most basic meaning, the word means to dip, dunk, or immerse. It does not mean to sprinkle or pour. You see, the word baptize is a transliteration which means that we translated the sound of the word instead of the meaning of the word. And so baptizo became baptized. But if you were to translate its meaning, it would be immerse. This is how baptizo is used throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, it either means immersion in water or it describes a metaphorical immersion. But either way, baptizo always means immersion. Now, the second reason why baptism is done by immersion is that every time you see a description of it, people were getting dunked in water. For example, Mark chapter 1, we see John the Baptist baptizing people. And where does he baptize them? Well, it says that he baptized them in the Jordan River. Later on, we see that Jesus was also baptized by John. And after he was baptized, it says he came up out of the water. 
So at the very least, this strongly implies that John the Baptist was baptizing by immersion. Now, another example is the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. So in Acts 8, you have Philip and the eunuch going along the road. Uh, They come to some water. And then the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In verse 38, it says, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, again, baptism here is described as immersion, right? You would not need to go down into the water and to come up out of the water unless immersion was a mode of baptism. Now, I have a good friend who's a, an elder at a Presbyterian church, and he tells me that maybe Philip and the eunuch came to a body of water, and then Philip scoops up a handful of that water and sprinkles the eunuch. But here's the problem with that argument. How much water does it take to sprinkle? Not very much. I think I can sprinkle 10 of you guys with this tiny little cup. And so why in the world would you need to go to a body of water in order to sprinkle? Well, that's because it wasn't sprinkling, it was immersion. Let me give you one more passage, John 3.23. John 3.23 says that John the Baptist, he's now moved from the Jordan River, he's now gone south, he is baptizing at Anon near Salem because, what does it say? Water was plentiful there. Right? Do you see that? Water was plentiful there. Why does he need a lot of water? Because he was baptizing by immersion. So, you see, from all of these examples, from biblical precedent, and from the meaning of the word baptizo, that's what it means. We can see that baptism is by immersion. It is not by sprinkling or pouring. Now, more on this later as we talk about the symbolic meaning of baptism, which I believe necessitates immersion. But for now, that's point number two. Baptism is by immersion. Point number three. Baptism is for believers. It is for believers and not infants. Or rather, it is for believers and not the infant children of believing parents. Now, here in point three... I want to address the question of who should be baptized, right? Who should be baptized? I want you to see that there is one consistent pattern in the New Testament. Baptism comes after faith in Christ. So baptism should only be administered to those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. Please note this. The Bible does not teach the practice of baptizing unbelievers, even if these unbelievers are the infant children of believing parents. Let me show you from the book of Acts. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 38. And as you turn there, I'll give you some context. In Acts 2, we have the baptism of 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem. And the setting here is the temple where they had gathered for Pentecost. Peter has just finished preaching his sermon. And this is what he says, reading from Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, first look at verse 39. Look at verse 39, where it says, the promise is for you and your children. Now, this verse does not allow for infant baptism, despite what some people believe. And we know this because at the end of the verse, it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, This refers to those whom God calls to salvation through faith in Christ. In other words, it refers to believers. So this verse does not allow for infant baptism. And then look at verse 41. Look at verse 41 and notice that in verse 41, only those who receive his word, those who believe the gospel, were baptized. Now turn over, turn nine chapters over to Acts 11, verses 17 and 18. Acts 11, 17 and 18. Now, in the previous chapter, in Acts 10, we had the baptism of Gentiles in Caesarea. Uh, The gospel is now going out to the Gentiles, and Peter is preaching at the house of Cornelius. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, they believed, and then they were baptized. In Acts 11, 17, Peter explains why he baptized these Gentiles. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who is I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what Peter is saying here is that everyone at Cornelius' house heard the gospel, believed, repented, and then they were baptized. Notice that it's the same pattern here as in Acts chapter 2. And also notice that there's no evidence of any infants being baptized, right? Because all who are baptized were able to hear, believe, and repent. And infants are not capable of hearing, believing, and repenting. Okay, now turn to Acts 16. Go to Acts 16, verse 32. In Acts 16, there are two more examples of households being baptized as Paul ministers in Philippi. And for the sake of time, let's look at one of these two households. Let's look at the household of the Philippian jailer. Acts 16.32 says that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him, that's the jailer, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. So again, we see the same pattern, don't we? All who were in his household heard the gospel. It's implied that they all believe, and then they were all baptized. Last passage, Acts 18. Last passage, go to Acts 18, verse 8. Here in Acts 18, Paul is in Corinth preaching the gospel at a synagogue, and this is what happened reading from Acts 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So again, same pattern. The gospel is preached. Those who heard it, namely Crispus, his household, and many Corinthians believed, and then they were baptized. So these examples from Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 16, and Acts 18 are why I believe that baptism is only for believers. There is one pattern in the book of Acts. The gospel is preached, faith and repentance follows, and then baptism. So that's point number three, baptism is for believers. Point number four, baptism is symbolic of union with Christ. It is symbolic of our union with Christ. Now, the question we have to answer here is, what does baptism do? Right? What does it do? First, you need to know that baptism does not save. The act of baptism is not salvific. There are many people who wrongly believe that baptism contributes to your salvation. Uh, For example, Roman Catholics believe that baptism washes away original sin. And so for them, baptism saves you even if you don't believe in Jesus. Now, there are some Protestants who believe in something called baptismal regeneration. So these people believe that you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized in order to be saved. In other words, baptism is necessary for salvation. But that's not what the Bible teaches, right? The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, We're not saved by works, not even by the work of baptism. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So baptism does not save, and it is not necessary for salvation. So what does it do? Well, baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. The going down into the water is a picture of dying with Christ, and the coming up out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ. So baptism is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our union with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, this is another reason why baptism must be by immersion, right? Because only immersion gives you a picture of union with Christ. Like, you have to go down into the water, and you have to come up out of the water to have a picture of death and resurrection. You don't get that by sprinkling. And it's also another reason why only believers can be baptized, because only believers have been united to Christ. Let me show you from Romans 6. Reading from Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here in Romans 6, Paul presumes that someone who has been baptized has had the experience of dying and been raised with Christ, right? That's what he says. He says those who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. Friends, for those of you who have been baptized, did you know what you were doing? Most of us, we do things and we don't know why we do them. Did you know that you were physically enacting your own death to sin and your own resurrection to new life? 
Did you know that? Baptism portrays the union of a believer to Jesus, which is why only believers can be baptized. By the way, if you've never heard of union with Christ, you need to know that it's one of the most important doctrines in the Bible. A Sinclair Ferguson once said that if you don't think of yourself fundamentally as someone who is united to Christ, then you have missed what it means to be a Christian. And I would argue you have also missed the meaning of baptism. You see, baptism portrays what happened when you became a Christian. When you became a Christian, you died with Christ. In other words, your old self of unbelief and rebellion died. You became dead to sin and you became dead to the passions and desires of the flesh. And then a new you came into being. You see, just as Christ was raised, we were also raised to walk in newness of life. To live a new kind of life. So this is what is pictured in baptism. Death to our old way of life and rising in newness of life, all because of the reality of union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is what baptism symbolizes, union with Christ. Point number five, baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. It is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. Now, what do I mean by initiating oath sign? Okay, so first, baptism is a sign. A sign is something that identifies someone as a member of a covenant community. For example, for Israel, a circumcision would identify someone as a member of the old covenant community. And so likewise, for Christians, baptism identifies you as a member of the new covenant community. Baptism marks you off from the rest of the world. Also, by getting baptized, Christians swear an oath. They make a pledge to commit their lives to Jesus and to commit their lives to his people. So baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. Well, what are the implications of this? Well, since baptism is the initiating oath sign, then the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign. So that's why you have to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. So here's an analogy. A baptism is like saying your vows at your wedding, while the Lord's Supper is like renewing your vows. So it only makes sense to say your vows before you renew them. And that's why here at North Shore, we ask that you hold off on taking the Lord's Supper until you have been baptized. By the way, this practice, putting baptism before the Lord's Supper, is not unique It's actually been the common practice in church history. For example, in Article 14, New Hampshire Confession of Faith, it says Christian baptism is a prerequisite to the privileges of the Lord's Supper. So baptism comes first and then the Lord's Supper because baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. However, baptism is not the new covenant replacement for circumcision. You see, the argument from Presbyterians is that since circumcision was the old covenant sign given to God's people, well, then baptism should be the new covenant replacement for circumcision. And since God commanded Abraham to circumcise every male infant, well, then Christians should baptize the infants of believing parents. It's actually a pretty simple argument, right? Here's the argument. God has given promises to both adults and their children under the old covenant. 
And so God must also give promises to both adults and their children under the new covenant. And since the sign of the old covenant was given to both adults and their children, well, then the sign of the new covenant should also be given to both adults and their children. Now, I want to be clear. Presbyterians do not believe that infant baptism saves as Roman Catholics do. But they do believe that infant baptism marks the children of believers as members of the covenant community. So if you're a child in a Presbyterian church, your parents are Christians, the moment you're sprinkled, you become a member of that church. Now, as Baptists, we have many reasons for disagreeing with this. Uh, The main reason is that infant baptism is simply not in Scripture. Theologian Roger Nicole once said that there are a lot of verses in the Bible about baptism, and there are a lot of verses in the Bible about infants, but not one verse about baptizing infants. Not one verse that either commands or describes the baptism of an infant. But another reason why we disagree with baptizing infants is that we believe that there is significant discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All right, There is significant discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. Let me give you an example of discontinuity. In the Old Covenant, both saved and unsaved people are members of the covenant. That's the way it was. So as long as you're a part of the nation of Israel, you are a part of the covenant, no matter what, even whether you were saved or not. However, under the new covenant, only those who are saved can be a part of the covenant. Let me read from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, according to Jeremiah, all who are in the new covenant Know the Lord. All who are in the new covenant confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what it means to know the Lord. So that's why you can't baptize infants. Because by baptizing infants, you're applying the sign of the new covenant to those who don't know the Lord, which is out of bounds according to Jeremiah 31. Well, if you want to learn more about this, and I know you do, listen to Ed's sermon on our website from March 12, 2017. Uh, this sermon is subtly titled, Infant Baptism is Wrong. <laughs> March 12, 2017, Infant Baptism is Wrong. Point number six, baptism is a public identification with Jesus. It is a public identification with Jesus. You know, evangelicals have rightly emphasized that Christians ought to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Becoming a Christian is personal. But being a Christian is not meant to be private. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me, be, me, acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Also, Luke 9, 26. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So in other words, to be a Christian is to be a public witness to Christ. And our witness begins with baptism. Bobby Jameson in his book, Going Public, says that baptism is where faith goes public. He says, baptism is a public identification with Christ where one publicly professes faith in Jesus and repents of sin. Baptism is where faith becomes visible. And it's how a new Christian shows up on the world's radar. So baptism is where faith goes public. This is why baptism is so closely tied to salvation in the New Testament, right? For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized. So repent, believe, be saved, and then go public by getting baptized. This is why here at North Shore, we believe that baptism is required for membership. So in order to be a member, not only do you have to be a Christian, but you have to be a baptized Christian, So if a person has not been biblically baptized, well, then we would baptize you when we vote you in as a member. Now, in the past, a few people have asked us, you know, why require anything other than salvation for membership, right? Why require something other than faith to be a member? Again, Bobby Jameson says it best. He says, baptism is sort of like the team jersey of Christianity. He says, so when you become a part of a team, you put on a jersey so that you can be recognized as a member of that team. Now, the jersey itself does not make you a part of the team. But what it does, it allows others to identify which team you're on. And so God gave us baptism so that the church and the world would recognize that we are on Team Jesus. That is why baptism is required for membership. So you see, it's not enough to just come to church, wear a Christian t-shirt, go on Facebook, change your status, you know, religious affiliations, click, Christian. Those are good things, but you have to be baptized. The church cannot affirm your profession if you haven't made it public by getting baptized. So baptism is required for membership. It is a public identification with Christ, and it's part of what it means to be a Christian. Last point, point number seven, baptism marks the start of church membership. Baptism marks the start of church membership. So baptism is required for membership, and it marks the start of membership. It initiates membership in the local church. Uh, Once again, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, so those who received his word were baptized, were also, then they were also received by the church. Right? Do you see that? They were baptized into the membership of the church and incorporated into the life of the church. That's what's being described in verse 42 when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's preaching, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. So you see, being united to Christ also means being united to the body of Christ. 
And just as it would have been unheard of for a Christian to not be baptized, it would have also been unheard of for a baptized Christian to not be a part of a church. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. This concept does not exist in the New Testament, and it should not exist today. This is why here at North Shore, we would not baptize someone without any connection to membership. So if someone were to say, I'm saved, I want to be baptized, but I don't want to be a part of a church, we would not baptize that person. Now, one exception would be a situation where joining a church is nearly impossible. For example, if someone is moving to a place where there are no churches, like in a missionary context. This was the case, wasn't it, for the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Uh, Philip preaches the gospel to the eunuch. The eunuch gets saved. He gets baptized. And we don't know that he ever joins a church, probably because there were no churches in that area. So there are some exceptions. But for the most part, baptism should be attached to membership. Again, Bobby Jameson says, baptism is like the front door and membership is the house. So by walking through the front door, you enter the house. Or to use the analogy from before, when you put on that jersey, when you put on that uniform, you also commit to playing for the team. So what should happen is this. The church affirms a new believer's profession of faith by baptism and then receives that person as a member of the church. Well, I got through that pretty quickly. So I like to close with six points of application. Here are six points of application. Number one, if you are here today, you are not a Christian, well, then I don't offer you baptism. Instead, I offer you the gospel. The gospel says that all have sinned and fall short of his glory, and that because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. And the gospel also says that Jesus came, and he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave, and he ever lives as our Savior. And if anyone would call upon his name, If you trust him and you repent of your sins, you can be saved. So I don't offer you baptism. I offer you the gospel. Believe in the gospel and be saved. And if the Lord saves you, you should be baptized. Well, then that leads us to point number two, application two. If you are saved and you have not been baptized, well, then you should be baptized in obedience to Jesus' command. You see, it's not enough to just come to church. God commands us to go public with our faith in baptism. So let's obey this command. And when it comes to obedience, better late than never. Number three, if you have been sprinkled, if you have been sprinkled, come and be baptized and see the beautiful depiction of union with Christ as you are immersed in the waters of baptism. Number four, if you were baptized as an unbeliever, whether you were sprinkled as an infant or you were immersed as an adult, but you were an unbeliever, please know that according to the Bible, you have not been baptized. Your baptism was not a baptism. Now, I am not saying that you are in deliberate sin, but I implore you to conform to the scriptures, which teaches that baptism is only for believers. Uh, There's a story about a missionary couple from America who sailed out from Salem, Massachusetts. And this couple had been baptized as infants. And during their four-month voyage, they studied the meaning of baptism, and they became convinced that it was only for believers. 
This is the true story of Anne and Adoniram Judson, who were among the first American missionaries to India. And so, upon arrival to India, this is a great story. Upon arrival to India, they were baptized by another famous missionary named William Carey. Better late than never. Number five. If you have been baptized, but you are currently not a member of a church, please know that you are a lone ranger. You're a free agent. You might have a uniform, but you have no team. And so it's important that you find a church and commit to being a member. Lastly, number six. Now, for most of you, these applications don't apply to you at all. Right, you've been baptized as a believer, you were baptized by immersion, and you're a member of a church. So let me give you two encouragements. Remember and rejoice. Remember and rejoice. So first, remember. Remember your baptism and remember that you have been united to Christ. So if baptism is the symbol, then union with Christ is the reality. And if union with Christ is the reality then holiness is the outworking of this reality. So remember your baptism and consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, 11. You must live a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. Also, remember your baptism and remember that baptism is a public profession of our faith. Right In baptism, we say to the world, we belong to Jesus. Remember this. For most of church history, upon being baptized, Christians would risk persecution and even death. Jesus promised this when he said that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they'll persecute you. Even today, in certain parts of the world, getting baptized is costly. It may cost you your life. So in light of this, for those of you who have been baptized, that's most of you, I want to challenge you. Do not begin your Christian life with a public profession, and then for the rest of your life, avoid every opportunity to give testimony to your faith. Why would you openly identify with Christ at your baptism, and then be silent at the workplace, at the dinner table, or on our college campuses? Let us learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world by being unashamed and boldly sharing the gospel, even in the midst of hardship and persecution. And lastly, rejoice. Rejoice when others get baptized. So later today, we as a church will be baptizing six individuals at Long Beach. And if you could have their photos up here. So from left to right, we have Gabby Smith, Jason Jang, Mary Lee, Alice Wong, Charles Moragi, and the great Omar Torres. Uh, These six have all been interviewed by the elders. They have taken our membership class And they're excited to go public and be baptized into the membership of the church. So I hope all of you will come and rejoice as we affirm their profession and the reality of their union with Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that tonight the drama of baptism will have its intended effect. That these individuals would commit their lives anew to Jesus even as they think about their own death to sin and resurrection to new life. Lord, would you bless them as they publicly profess their love for you and their commitment to your people. And as we, your church, in turn, affirm our love for them. 
And Lord, I pray that we as a church, we would never take this ordinance lightly. I pray that our hearts would always be impacted by it and that our faith would be strengthened by it and that we would be moved to be bold witnesses in this fallen world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.